Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. morning. Pastor Craig is going to be bringing the word. So I'm just going to pass it over to him. Welcome, Craig. Thank you very much. Good to be with you this morning. Just got back from Melbourne, uh, Malakuta. Anyone heard of Malakuta? God, it's a great place, part of Australia. Um, it was, uh, so I got back last night. So uh, it's good to be with you this morning. So what I like to do, as always, is to get people to think. I I do. Uh, I just don't want to affirm what you've heard before, because you don't need to already hear what you've heard before. But what I want to do is to try and get you to think. And as always, I always say, if you don't believe what I believe, that's, that's fine. If it got you to think about what you believe, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Because I want to be challenged, I want to grow, and one of the ways you grow is to be challenged beyond what you already know. Because if you don't get challenged beyond what you already know, you'll stay the same, right? So we want to be stretched, we want to be pushed. Um, so I'm happy to do that um, to you. Uh, so let's do that. I've called this, if you're taking notes, don't blow off what God's breathed. I want to preach a sermon about the Bible, if that's okay. Yep. Because uh, on special requests, I remember Carrie saying, Craig, you should talk about the Bible. Remember you said that? She's looking at me. You, you did. We're in a It doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's just pray. So, Father, we thank you today that you've given us the gift of life. That we're here, we can breathe. We've got our friends. We've got our family. We've got the football today. We've got uh, just good food We've got, in Australia, we are so blessed. We have so much to be thankful. Every day we can get up, no matter what issue, problem that we have around us, we are more blessed living in this country than anyone else. And we just thank you for that, God. We could have been born anywhere, but you've put us in Australia. You've put us in New South Wales. You've put us in Penrith. And you've put us here in this church today. And we thank you for that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd guide us, uh, you'd help us grow and understand who we are, who you are, and what our work is in this world. I pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said? Long ago, the Jews were really accustomed to understanding the Torah. The Torah in the Jewish culture is known as the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these books were very, very important. This was called the way or the word or the light. Very important. So important that rabbis would memorise these first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. They would memorise it word for word. And then they'd pass it orally down throughout the ages. Um, But they understood this Torah as like as an orchard. Do you know what I'm talking about? An orchard of trees or whatever you want to say. And they would understand how to interpret it like this. It was like a, uh, a you know, from a distance you would see a field of trees. It's like from a uh, high up in a, on a mountaintop, you'd look over the plains and you'd 
see, obviously, there was rows of trees, uh, which was an orchard. And then when you came closer, you would actually see the leaves and the blossoms and the fruit um, on that orchard. And when you came even closer, you realised that each piece of fruit was covered by a skin. And if you are persistent and peel back the skin, you would be rewarded with this delicious fruit. Now you realise that what at first seemed to be only a field of trees actually conceals layers within layers of wonderful things. And that's how I like to see the Bible as well. It conceals wonderful, delicious surprises. Not only does it give us wisdom for what it means to be fully human, but it gives us wisdom about life, doesn't it? Proverbs 3.18 says this, It's a tree of life to those who hold on to it. So how do you get to taste the fruit of the Bible? It's a good question. How do you get to taste the fruit of the Bible? Well, first of all, I'd like to say this, that context matters. When you read the Bible, context matters. Has anyone ever said something or written something in a text and it was totally misinterpreted? Text without tone can get you in a lot of trouble, right? I have. I've said stuff and people have taken what I've said and um, put a different slant on it altogether uh, and I've got into a whole lot of trouble or I've said something and I didn't mean it that way, but how they interpreted it came out an altogether different way. Yeah, so context matters. Now, why do I say that? Well, 15 years ago, I understood the first time that Jesus was uh, a Jewish person living in Middle Eastern countries, speaking to Middle Eastern people over 2,000 years ago. And you might think, that's really weird. We all, who doesn't know that Jesus was a Jew? We all know he was a Jew, right? I've been in ministry for 30 years, but I actually had a revelation that Jesus was Jewish. My idea of Jesus before that was he had the long hair and the blue eyes and the nice little trimmed goatee, right? But he actually looked nothing like that. He was almost dark. If you've ever seen a, a Jewish person back into that, they were really dark skin. And the Bible says he wasn't the most good looking bloke at all. But we in our Western culture pretty him up a bit, give him white skin and you know, make him look like a bit of a hipster. But yeah. So he came from this world of politics and economics and common stories and inside jokes that the more you knew about that world, the more Jesus' message came to life for me. Yeah. For me, the Bible went from black and white to multidimensional colour. It went from black and white to 4K TV almost. High definition. Um, Yeah. So after a while for me, I began sharing this with other people. And what to me would come up time and time again, the way I began to see the Bible and begin to share about the nuances and the, the politics of the time and applied that to the text, people would come up to me and go, Craig, Why has anyone never told me this before? This gives a totally different idea or a different meaning to Scripture. 
Um, this makes a whole lot more sense. And for me, when I read it this way, it, the Bible became more provocative, more dangerous, more interesting, more progressive, uh, more funny, more poetic and intriguing. I was learning new things in the Bible because I was reading it in a different way, a way that I had never been exposed to before. And I realised I didn't really know how to read the Bible. I've been preaching for 15 years at that point. I realised I didn't really know how to read it. And I think a lot of people are in that boat, so it's probably why a lot of people don't actually read it, or they simply just blow it off and ignore it. Or they read it really, really badly and they cause a lot of harm and division and problems by their interpretation. So I just want to say to you, the first point I want to make is context matters. You need to understand that the Bible was written by Jewish people. Mark is people facing, was written to people in Rome, facing persecution, about to be uh, killed. They were thrown blood on them and thrown in the arena and wild dogs and animals would come and eat them alive. So he's saying, how do you, how do you handle wilderness times in your life? Is the theme of the book of Mark. And John and Luke, I could go on, I don't want to get, but there's context to it. Now we think a lot differently to a Jew. We have a Greek mindset where what you believe in intelligence is really important to us. But to a Jew, it's not. It's what you do is really important. Practice is greater than knowledge. So that's why we bang on about what you believe. You've got to believe the right stuff. In, in, the, in Jesus' day, for the Jews, it's all about you've got to actually do the right stuff. That's why Jesus actually even says, let your good works shine before men. That will give glory to God. If you do these things, then you love me. It's all about practice, example. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. Yeah? That's why the message that often is preached, you've just got to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus. That's your ticket to heaven. That's just an idea that's only about 150 years old. Jesus actually rarely said that. 21 times throughout the Gospels he said, follow me. How many know it's a lot easier to believe in Jesus than to follow him? <laughs> the call was never to believe. The call was always do what I do. This is how to live. This is what it means to be fully alive. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to really live. Forgive, give, be merciful. The list goes on. Yeah. That's why so many times when you read the Bible, um, Jesus breaks out into parables or stories. You know, what is the kingdom of God like? If you go to Bible school today, they'll give you what's called systematic theology which they'll just give you a breakdown. The kingdom is a, like a dome where God lives, where his will is done. Makes sense, doesn't it? Kingdom of God is like a dome where God's will is done, where God lives. That's systematic theology. What I have a problem with that is Jesus actually never talked about the kingdom like that. He actually says the kingdom of God is like 
a guy who finds a great pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like yeast in bread. Or the kingdom of God, he uses poetry and he uses mystery. He, so when you, when you look and you hear those stories, it makes you, uh, you have an interpretation. You begin to visualise something. You begin to enter into something. And every time he talked about the kingdom, he didn't talk about intelligence. He talked about someone experiencing something. So the kingdom is not a thought, it's an experience. Yeah. Now this is really important to understand. The last one is because I just want to rattle off. I've, I've got a sermon for each of those thoughts, but uh, I just want to give you a taste. Thirdly, asking the right questions matter when it comes to reading the Bible. Now, as you know, the Bible did not drop out of the sky. That would be good. It would have saved me about $15 but, uh, when I bought my first one. But it was written by people. And the people who wrote these books had lots and lots and lots of material to choose from. There were countless stories floating around, tons of accounts being handed down, massive amounts of material to include and not to include. Some say that the Gospels, there was about 50 different accounts of the Gospel stories. So why have we got four? That's a good question. Why did we include these four? Well, let me show you some things here. First Kings chapter 11, verse 41 says this. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? Now the author makes an assumption here when he writes this, that we know this and we have access to the Acts of Solomon, these journals that were written down. The thing is, we don't. No one's ever found these journals of Solomon. Right? Um, we see something similar in, in the John's Gospel. Let me read this in John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then the book ends with this line in verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. So the author of John finishes the book and basically says, oh, by the way, I left out a heap of stuff. That's how he finishes the book. My point is that the authors of the Bible weren't just writing they were selecting and they were editing and they were choosing and making decisions about what material and contact was going to help their purpose for writing the book. And their purpose in writing the book was shaped by their times and their places and their contexts and their psyches and personal histories and economies and politics and religion and technology and countless other factors that were happening two, three, four thousand years ago. Yeah. For example, what does it tell you about the world of Abraham when he's told to offer his son as a sacrifice? And the guy doesn't even ask how. 
it seems like he knows what to do. And he just sets out as it was a natural thing for God to ask at that time. What does it tell you about that world? Well, if you actually go back and study it, you find out that in that time that people believed that the gods were not on their side. They were angry all the time. And you would have to appease them, right, by offering them things. And one of the offerings that you would give if there was a big drought in the land or if you really wanted God to be on your side and get favour from God is that you would offer your son, your firstborn, as a sacrifice. This is the world that Abraham grows up in. So for him, when he goes to offer his son that's making a covenant, God and him are making this covenant, this agreement, they're going to work together. So what is the natural thing for him to do? Well, I know what to do about that. Go off and offer my son as a sacrifice. Now, we know that he didn't because there was a big statement that God was making. I'm not like the other gods. I'm not like those gods. I'm different. This was revolutionary in this time in history. Yeah. David and Goliath's story starts off like this in 1 Samuel 17, 4-7. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet, his head on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So what's interesting about this story is it starts with technology. What do you do when your enemy has this new kind of weapon that you don't have? So the story is undergirded with the fear that comes when your neighbour has a weapon that you don't have, like spears or guns or nuclear weapons or missiles. Let me give you a New Testament example. In the Roman Empire, during the time of Jesus, they had a, it was a military saying. It was, the, it was a propaganda that went around about Caesar. And this is what it said. There is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. Talking about Caesar. That was the propaganda going around at that time. So when the Apostle Peter used this phrase and made it about Jesus, he's referring to something his readers would have understood. And all of a sudden it becomes a lot more dangerous because he's taking this political propaganda that was about the Caesar who ruled the known world at that time and made it about Jesus. Yeah. Real people writing in real places, at a real time, choosing to include some things and choosing not to include some other things. Why do I tell you this? Well, if you know this, then when you read the Bible, asking the right questions really matters. 
So many times I hear Christians say, oh, but the, the Bible says this, and they take a phrase or they take a line. It's the word of God. It's black and white. To me, that says that they don't understand how to read the Bible. When someone says something like that, it's not black and white. That's a Greek way of looking at it. Unfortunately, it's written in a Hebrew way. So there's a whole lot of innuendo, poetry, and a whole lot of uh, things going on that's all taking into account. Yeah. Are you with me so far? Asking the right questions matters. Why, like, why did the writer decide to include this? Not, is this true or is this false, but why did they want me to know this? And often the weirder it is, and the more what way out it is, the more the author's trying to get your attention. Because there's something else going on here that he wants you to pick up. Out of all the things that the author could have said, why did he include this? Why did he include this tale? Or why is it important to know this? Why is the bigger story, what, sorry, what is the bigger story? What is the overarching trajectory of what is going on here? Um, and how does it give us meaning today? I believe that the Bible is beyond its time. There's still things that I come across and I scratch my head and I go, but our awareness or maybe our enlightenment or our understanding can't comprehend it. Yeah. All right, let me give you one more example of this. Uh, let's break a verse down a bit. Is that okay? <clears throat> verse 7 in Deuteronomy of chapter 34. It's early in the story of God. Moses was 120 years old. You know anyone like that? Do you know anyone that looks like that? Okay, now I can get an amen. Right. He was 120 years old. We're just going to take one verse. He was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. That's reading out of the NIV translation. Now, a few other translations say different words, so I'm going to read another translation. Here's what the King James says. Uh, Deuteronomy 34, 7. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Now, dying, as a general rule, is what happens when your strength is gone. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So why does the writer want us to know that his strength was gone? Right? Because it seems to be a bit weird, doesn't it? He was 120 years old and died. His eye was not dim, nor was his natural force abated. Well, the Hebrew word for strength here is really important to understand. It's leheo which means moisture or freshness. Moisture or freshness. He died, but his moisture, it's getting weirder, isn't it? Hadn't left him. (laughs) 
They buried him, but he still had freshness. <laughs> well, we've got to understand that word, leheo, is a euphemism for sexual potency. I know, I just said that word. I know it's a taboo subject in church, but it's true. This is what the writer wants you to know about Moses at the time of his death. That's right, church. Moses, the great liberator of the people, the hero who defied Pharaoh, the man of God who led thousands, millions out of Egypt, was still sexually potent. That's what the writer's trying to get you to say when he died. Now, of course, this raises the question, why? Why on earth does the writer want you to know this? See why it's important to ask the right questions? Well, to answer that question, you have to go back early in history to um, the people of Moses. There was a man, before the people of Moses, there was a man named Abraham. Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had father Abraham, and Moses was one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. We know that. What we learn about Abraham is he left his father's household and set out on a journey to a new land, right? Now, people didn't do that in that time in history. They just didn't do it because they had this cyclic view of history. And they believed that every, everything that happened will one day happen again. It just goes around and around and around. They believe that you were born into this cycle of events and that you will die somewhere in that time cycle of events. And as the cycle endlessly repeats itself, you will live and die within that cycle. In other words, there was nothing new under the sun. What happened to your ancestors will at some point eventually happen to you. And if it doesn't happen to you, it'll happen to your children. And on and on the cycle goes. But here's what's powerful about that's this story. But then Abraham leaves. He steps out of the cycle. No one, this is like a defining moment in Scripture. No one had ever done that before. No one had a different vision of the future before. This is a new idea in human history, that you weren't stuck. You don't have to repeat everything. You're not going around in circles. What had happened isn't going to, what's, what happened in the past isn't going to define the future. But to understand the significance of that story, you have to go even further back. Because that story is within a larger story, in a larger arc, a larger trajectory. There is actually a progression of violence when you go back to the beginning. And it starts in the early chapters of Genesis. We know the story, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous of Abel and what does he do? He kills him, kills his brother. And what you notice in that story, it just begins to escalate. You read the next chapter and there's this, all this violence. Uh, it, it's like... Humanity is spiralling downward into greater and greater conflict and destruction. You read Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and then bang, you hit Genesis chapter 11 
People are setting up empires, oppressing the masses, entire systems, perpetuating injustice. Right? Oh, but then comes along Abraham and he leaves, goes into a new land. So the question hanging in the air after the first 10 chapters of Genesis, how much worse can it get? So when we read about Abraham leaving home, the writer wants you to know it's about Abraham leaving a system, an entire way of life. It's about Abraham. He becomes the father of a new kind of people, a people that will be a blessing to all other people, a people that will not conquer you but will bless you. (gasps) So this is dynamic. Here's all of a sudden a God that comes in in chapter 11 that says, I'm about blessing people. In fact, I'm going to prosper you so you can be generous towards others and bless and make the world a better place. And we see patterns throughout Scripture of Israel becoming one of those systems or becoming one of those empires. Solomon is a great example of that, becoming this empire where he's starting to set up um, um, uh, war bases and trading armaments and using his blessing, turning it in on himself. We read that he gets slaves and, and all this stuff. And, and, you know, the Queen Bathsheba comes and often we take the verse out of context. She says, oh, you know how it's excellent and all that sort of, we do a big doctrine on excellence and all this kind of stuff. But what she's doing is she's got a tongue in her cheek and says, you, this is supposed to be used to do what's good and right. She actually quotes the, the mission or the commission of Abraham. But you've turned all your money and all your prosperity and all your wealth in on yourself. Wow. So he talks about Abraham. Your people will be a blessing to all other people. So how do you do that? How do you form a new kind of people that's purpose is to take the world into a different direction. How do you do that? You have kids. You have kids. How do you have kids? You have sex. And sex involves, that's right, moisture and freshness. So when the writer says... And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. It's saying the vision to create this new kind of people, to take the world in a different direction, is still very much alive. So the question at the heart of this verse is, can the world head in a new kind of direction? Or are we trapped in a cycle, doomed to repeat the same old cycles of conflict and oppression and injustice? And whose side is the natural force of the universe on? When there is injustice and oppression and empires being set up at the expense of draining life from others, how does God respond? 
What is the core or what is the commission of the new kind of people or the family that God is creating on the earth? All this from one verse. And we're only scratching the surface here. We can actually go deeper, but we're not because some of you have fallen asleep. So, See, asking the right questions matter. You can notice the orchard, that there are trees if you want, and just see, oh, there's some trees over there. Or you can come a bit closer and notice there's actually some fruit there. You can actually go and get closer and peel back the skin. And you can actually even go closer and you can taste and you can see that the Lord is good. Yeah. Let me finish with this one more thought. Context matters. Asking the right questions matter. And your actions matter. If you've read David's little uh, intro, he's talking about go. If you I don't know, I know when I write them, no one reads them in my church. So, uh, but your church looks a lot holier than mine. So I'm reckon you've, you guys have read that uh, intro. Um, don't tell my church that I said that, by the way, or I might be sitting here more often. <laughs> your actions matter. I want to say it again. We can talk about believing the right things till the cows come home. The good Samaritan on the side of the road, no, he wasn't on the side of the road. The guy that was beaten up on the side of the road, did he really care what those people believed? No. What made a difference to him is that someone came and helped him. How many times do we get caught up in, you believe what's right, you believe what's wrong. It's all about this judgmental kind of thing. It doesn't matter. Just love people. <laughs> Just love people. Yeah, your actions matter. And love is not sentimentality. You know, in that story, it, says, it talks about a religious leader and a community leader and a Samaritan that was despised and no one liked because of what he believed about God and a whole bunch of things. But the guy that no one liked and had, you could argue for the rest of the days about what he believed, he actually got off his backside and was the one that helped. Why did Jesus choose to, why did he tell that story? How confronting and what kind of political agenda did he have in even telling that story? Yeah, your actions matter. Often we get caught, so caught up in what we're, we're not, we shouldn't be doing. Don't do this. A lot of times Christianity is all about the don'ts. What if we just did what we were supposed to be doing? Loving people, loving our neighbour, blessing our enemies, forgiving those that hurt us. How good would that be? I often find the people that get caught up in the things we're not supposed to be doing actually don't do much at all. The people that get things done in the world are the people that actually go and 
do stuff. <laughs> Isn't that true? I remember as a pastor, I've had plenty of different guys knock on my door that I'd never met before and come in and sit down and they start having a conversation about Christianity and then all of a sudden the real agenda comes out. They want to argue about tongues or different theological stuff and they really just came to my office to get their point of view across and every single time I just stop them and go, listen, it's not really about what you and I believe. You've spent a lot of energy coming in here and having building a case for your particular theological stance I said, imagine if you grabbed that energy and just went to an old people's home and cared for them. Or you went and gave out some food. Or you went and raised some money. Or you went overseas and dug a well. All this energy that you're arguing about, oh, I'm right and you're on a thought, no one cares about <laughs> except other people that are doing nothing with their life too. That's why the Bible says just avoid those kind of foolish arguments, really. They're just destructive. They're divisive. They get you nowhere. Right? Maybe there's some of you that are like that. Just stop it. Just stop it. Because at the end of the day, deep inside of you, you're feeling a sense of loss and insignificance anyhow. Just go. And put action. Go help someone. You'll feel significance and worth and a new joy that comes into your Christianity. Let your good works shine. Don't blow off what God's breathed. Can we pray? Father, I just thank you that uh, we get to be here. I want to thank you for the Bible, this library of books that teaches me how to be fully alive, to be fully human, teaches me how to live. Jesus, you said, I've come to give life, in life in all of its fullness. You are the master of living. And as a disciple, I want to learn from the master. I want to learn what it means to truly live the best possible life, an abundant life, a life in all of its fullness. My prayer that God, when people look at church communities, they would see a bunch of people that are learning how to live. They would look at us and go, ah, oh, that's what it means to truly live. They don't look at us and think self-righteousness, judgmentalism, exclusive but they think of people that know how to live I pray God that when it comes to your Bible I'd pray that it cause us now to maybe think I've just covered I've just touched not even the surface and maybe some are sitting here and going man I don't even know where to start I don't need man well, let me give you some encouragement the Lord says this, seek me and you will find me. It starts really with a heart of just seeking.
For me, 15 years ago, that's what happened. And once you taste, you can't untaste. Once you see, you can't unsee. God is such a good God. And he's given you some work to do on this earth. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. www.cofcpenrith.org. Dot O-R-G.